0: My name is Mason Canerich, I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on The Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong and he was eager to tell me what really happened. We have reached the last episode of this series. We shall learn who died and who survived. This is the aftermath of the ignition. The shock that went round the world as news spread.
1: I opened my eyes and looked up at a simple wooden roof. Confused, I tried to sit up, but found that I couldn't. Something was pressing against my chest, and there were restraints against my wrists and ankles. I heard footsteps. A woman appeared in my vision. She looked concerned, but friendly, and quickly explained the situation. She was a doctor, well, part of the barest Navy, but still a doctor. She was part of the relief effort that had been one of the first to reach the city. I tried to talk, but my throat was too sore, and I barely managed to croak out a word. She nodded and carried on. There had been a zombie outbreak, and hindsight had destroyed the entire city in a desperate and so far successful attempt at quarantine. Word had quickly reached the various armies that were camped in the surrounding area, and a coordinated response had been agreed. Soldiers had surrounded the city, and then teams had been sent in. Their mission had been to kill any remaining zombies and look for survivors. I was one of the few survivors, found just inside the mouth of one of the tunnels, a gunshot wound to the back. The doctor explained I'd been lucky she'd been there as the other soldiers, assuming I was infected and that was why I had been shot, were about to make sure I was dead. Instead, the doctor conducted a few tests and realized I wasn't infected and had been brought to this hastily erected quarantine center. While they were sure I wasn't infected, I would be spending the next few weeks in the center just to be sure and to treat my wounds, of course. That was also why I was restrained. If I was infected and I turned, I would still be trapped in the bed. Through an elaborate procedure that kept the doctor at arm's distance, she gave me a straw so I could sip some water, which helped my throat immensely, but I still struggled to talk. The doctor left shortly after, and regularly her or other medical professionals came to check on me. I think I was in some kind of shock, not from the bullet wound, but the enormity of what had happened, and it took a few hours before I was able to get my thoughts straight. Eventually, I felt I was ready, and waited for someone to enter to tell them what had happened. Eventually, I heard a door open and quietly close. I tried to speak, but my voice was still rough, and it was difficult to talk. Eventually, I managed to say my name, and that I needed to speak to someone in the military as soon as possible. There was no response. I tried to see who was there, but they didn't approach me, and instead walked around the room, closing curtains. Footsteps approached, and I finally saw who it was. Orek. He looked somewhat different. His hair cut short and his beard was gone, but it was him. I'd assumed the Brotherhood had all perished in the destruction of the city. After all, that was supposed to be their glorious last stand. He pulled up the only chair in the room and sat down next to me. We stared at each other in silence for a few seconds. Then he smiled. You survived. Congratulations, he said, reaching forward and squeezing my shoulder. I asked him how he had survived. Well, someone has to be around to silence dissenting voices. Altassen died in the palace. Someone smashed poor Devonier's head against a wall. Not many of us left. Oh, here's something you probably don't know. That bitch Vasca survived as well. He told me that some of Altassen's men were killing her as we spoke. They had wanted to kill me too, but Oric had insisted he be the one. He then apologized that all he could offer me was a quick, relatively painless death at his hands. Twice he'd been unable to honor me with his skills in torturing people. He spoke like it was a dying art form and he was the last true practitioner. I pulled against my restraints and told them that my death would be suspicious. People would ask questions. He agreed, but they wouldn't ask the right ones. Besides, millions of people had just died in tragic and bizarre circumstances. Would anyone care enough? With that, Oryx stood and removed his suit jacket. He wore a shoulder holster with a revolver and a few knives within, which he also took off and set with his jacket. Then he walked up to me and started undoing my restraints. Now don't tell those Oridians I did this, he said with a smile. Thought I'd give you a fighting chance. I slowly stood, and Auric gave me time to stretch my muscles a little. Auric had pushed the chair with his jacket and weapons to the far side of the room, and my focus was on the gun. But Orec stood before me. Come on, Orente, he said, taunting me. Are all you Cassarians just a bunch of devious sons of bitches? I threw a punch, and Oryk blocked it. I threw another, again blocked. After my third punch, he landed one of his own. Angry, I charged into him, but Oryk stood firm and clubbed me on the back of my head, knocking me down. Oryk laughed. He was enjoying this. I got back to my feet, and this time Oryk went on the offensive. Two punches to the gut, and then his forearm struck my face. I fell back against the bed, and my hand landed on something heavy. It was a buckle from one of the restraints that Oryk had removed. Oryk had grabbed a pillow from my bed and pressed it down over my face. I grabbed the restraint and swung the buckle at him. There was a cry of alarm, and the pressure was gone from the pillow. I looked at Oryk. He was against the wall, hands pressed against his face, blood pouring through them. I swung the restraint again, the buckle catching him on the side of his head. I hit him again and again, Auric crumpling into the corner of the room. I dropped the restraint and ran out of the room towards where Vaska would be. I crashed through the door only to see two men, one of them dead. The other would be in a few seconds. Vaska was gone. There was a noise behind me. I turned and saw Auric standing in the doorway, revolver in his hand. For a second I studied his face. I had made a real mess of it. The pistol shook in his hand, and I started to say something, and he fired. The bullet went wide. He fired again, missed, but closer. I was about to rush him, as I thought that was my best option, when there was a loud crashing noise. Auric fell to the ground, my doctor behind him, wielding a metal canister. I couldn't explain to the doctor everything that had gone on, only that I was in danger if I stayed. She had seen enough to believe me, and agreed to simply leave and come back in ten minutes. I quickly found my clothes and dressed. I searched the pockets of my enemies, taking all the money they had and a revolver. I then hurried from the small building which was housing us and tried to be as calm as possible, giving no one a reason to question me. The camp was full of people, soldiers and civilians, and I quickly vanished into the crowd. I went to the nearby town of Colstop and laid low for a few weeks waiting to see how people would react. My main hope was that Queen Orinsaya had survived, and that she could tell the story. To my amazement, Orinsaya had survived. Barely. She was badly injured, but insisted on immediately traveling to Moriaka. She died on the journey. Whether it was from her injuries or something more sinister, I've never been able to find out. The story the world believed about Korriban was the one Devonier and Altasen had created. An ancient and insane secret society had destroyed the city for their own bizarre and evil purposes. As the weeks turned to months, Altassin's predictions all came to be. In the Draven Empire, there was a bloody civil war for the throne, which eventually saw Taen V crowned emperor, a boy of nine years old. At the same time, many of their recently conquered territories fought for independence. In Moriaika, succession was clearer— but the centralizing drive of the last few monarchs was lost, with outlying provinces gaining more autonomy. As for Berystone, the loss of King Christoph was of little consequence, figurehead that he was. But Chancellor Hadrius's death shattered the governing coalition. A general election saw the rise of Hadrius's opponents to power, who pursued a very different agenda, focusing more on internal cohesion than foreign intrigues. Likewise, the Northern Expansion Company had lost a capable leader in Baron Castlebright, but it had also lost Hadrius, the man who could sell Barrist's global dreams to the government and to the people. As for Aridia and Kassaria, the destruction of Korriban had global implications, most of which Aridia benefited from. What had previously seemed to be rather odd investments and ventures now paid off handsomely. With the destruction of the Draven Empire and Moriaica, Aridia became the dominant land power, while Barristone, abandoning their policy of global influence, many of their old clients became Aridian clients. Kassaria's rewards were not as immediately clear, but the destruction of Korriban had meant the destruction of hundreds of trading ships, none of them Kassarian. Again, their recent expansion of the fleet had seemed a costly folly, but now left them able to exploit the situation. Of course, global trade changed. Korriban had been a huge hub of transportation and goods. One of the primary beneficiaries of this was the island of Besenka, Cassarian territory. I could also speculate on less obvious benefits that came to Kassaria, but that would just be guesswork. I found out that I had been declared dead, another casualty of the disaster. Initial reports that listed me as a survivor were unfortunate mistakes— I'd been set on returning to Cassaria and trying to put all this right and I had a rather startling experience. I'd been renting a small cottage in a village outside of Kulstop, and when I left my bedroom one morning, I found two dead bodies in the next room. They had the look of soldiers, but wore civilian clothes and had no identification. They did carry weapons. Lots of weapons. After recovering from shock, I noticed a thick leather-bound book on my table, which I discovered was Vaska's diary. I could only assume that Vaska had killed these men who had been sent to kill me. After that, I went into hiding, moving from place to place, traveling under false names with forged papers. There were more attempts made on my life, but I always managed to survive. After a few years, I started compiling everything I knew, writing it down, meeting people who had stories that didn't match the official history. And then I read your book, The Ignition. It was well-written history, if incorrect. But I hoped you would listen to me.
2: Article by Alara Quinn Korriban destroyed. First zombie outbreak in decades. Many world leaders dead. Korriban a disaster on an unprecedented scale with the death toll in the millions. The city of Korriban was full of people for the Congress of Korriban, including politicians from around the world, including two dozen heads of state. Reports are still coming in, but on the evening of April 19th, it seems an outbreak of the undead, origins unknown, began in the Silla district and quickly spread. Despite a heavy military and police presence, The outbreak was unable to be contained, and when the barest ship Hindsight was informed of this failure, an order was given to fire on the city. Sources have confirmed that all nations have similar, secret protocols, with actions to contain and destroy an outbreak overriding all other orders and laws. This being the first outbreak in two decades, this is the first time these protocols have been enacted. It would seem that most of the city's 7 million residents have been killed in combination of the zombie outbreak and the bombardment. The hindsight carried special incendiary shells, and the fire they caused is believed to have caused the most damage. Barrist military forces arrived within 14 hours and started to establish a proper quarantine procedure. Once additional Draven and Mariacan forces arrived, a joint expedition was sent into the city with the mission to exterminate any zombies and search for survivors. As yet, survivors number in the low thousands. As well as the humanitarian crisis, this has led to a political crisis due to the high number of world leaders and politicians attending the Congress. Rumors have been circulating that Barris Chancellor Roe Hadrius, Varence II of the Draven Empire, King Resimer of Junis are all dead, but it is impossible to confirm. Judging from the general devastation, it would seem safe to assume high casualties. An investigation into how the outbreak started has already begun, but given that no clear cause has ever been established for the first outbreak, many doubt an answer will be found.
3: Article by Rayan Barnard for the Barrister Daily Chronicle. An extremist organisation who claimed to be an ancient secret society have taken credit for the zombie outbreak in Korriban. Whilst the details sound outlandish, their story so far tallies with what is known of the outbreak. The group also claimed to be responsible for the original outbreak that brought down the Irellan Empire, and that the existence of the undead was a fact known to the ancient empires that originally ruled Korriban and was sometimes used as an effective weapon to destroy their enemies. The secret society claims to have been founded in the early history of the city with the sole purpose of maintaining the greatness of Korriban, whoever possessed it. They had grown frustrated under the rule of the Anvalan Empire and so destroyed it, but they became truly appalled by the division of the city. Apparently they feared the greatness of Korriban was permanently behind it, and wanted a glorious destruction. Something that would match the glory of the city.
0: That is the end of the story. If you believe that stories have ends, that is. I'm an historian and just see more and more happening. As I have mentioned before, the population of the world was shocked and scared, but eventually things calmed down. The destruction of so much, the deaths of so many, and the loss of leaders did have a profound effect on international politics. Both Iridia and Kisairia did well in the years after, but it must be said that the latter's gains were short-term at best. There was an investigation into how the outbreak in Korriban started. Well, numerous investigations, really. No clear answer was ever found, but most believe that someone was smuggling invaluable artifacts from the infected areas, and somehow the infection came with them. There have been other theories, but none had much evidence, and it was all based on unproven ideas. Henario was sometimes blamed, but as every assassination, earthquake and upset stomach was blamed on them, that wasn't surprising. Then there are the wilder theories. Punishment from gods, the revenge of the ghosts of the fallen Arellan government, things like that. I had hoped that the reignition theory wouldn't be grouped together with these unlikely theories, but for some it has. My reputation as an historian has taken a knock. My biggest detractors saying I am merely seeking attention and fame by publishing this material. Some others saying that I have merely indulged someone who claimed to be a witness of the Ignition. In my early days of being an historian, I was only interested in finding out what really happened and sharing that with the world. I still don't know whether I believe Zero's story, but he has shaken my certainty and that will inform what I do next. I shall let Zero have the last word. Shortly before I started work on this final episode, I received the following recording from him.
1: Mason, when I read your book and tracked you down, I didn't really think you would help me share this story with the world. I'm still surprised that you did. I hope the consequences of getting involved in this story will be less severe than they were for me. Before all of this, I always thought it important to study history. After a while, you begin to see the same stories happening again and again with new characters. They're never quite the same, and things do change, and new stories come along. Even if no one believes this, and the accepted history stays the same, maybe the story of it will have some impact. It's odd to feel part of such important events, and it's a poor spy who becomes part of history. So maybe I was never that good at it. Ever since the ignition, I've been trying to gather evidence and get this story out there and now I'm not quite sure what to do with myself. Maybe the people who've been following me for these last few decades will stop chasing me, as I've shared all of my secrets, and I can live some sort of normal life. Or maybe they'll redouble their efforts. Anyway, thanks for listening to me. Yours, Ciro Orente.
3: The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer, Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Cambridge was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbean.com. Sire Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at grahamny, G R A H a M N Y. Alora Quinn was played by Anjali Kuna Penny. Find Anjali on Twitter at Anjali, or contact her via email at A K U N A P A N E N K at gmail.com. Rayan Bernard was played by Richard Norton.